This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Following weeks of closed-door testimony, public hearings have started into the impeachment inquiry of U.S. President Donald Trump. How crucial a point in U.S. history and in this presidency are these hearings? Dr. David Yaloff, professor of political science at the University of Connecticut, Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor, who was also a speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and Dr. Elliot Tepper, senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, joined me to discuss. It's tough to say when you're in the middle of it. When <laughs> I venture to say that there were moments during the Watergate hearings when we didn't think that uh, things were moving in a direction that uh, would someday mark history. And there have been other hearings where uh, we were probably equally clueless. I, I think this much we can say about today and this week, um, momentum is either going to build uh towards uh, moving towards a formal impeachment vote that will be partisan lines, or uh, we'll end up having that vote, but the momentum will stall a little bit uh, based on uh, the efforts to color what's going on today as uh, hearsay, secondary, and not the, the greater issues. And so uh, it's, it's a cop-out, and I'm sorry about that, but uh, um, I, I think things can turn today, but I'm not sure we'll necessarily look back on November 13th as the be-all and end-all. Michael. Look, I mean, I think it's actually very straightforward. It's, it, this is a show trial. That's what it truly is. No matter what position you're on or what side of the fence you're on, whether you love U.S. President Donald Trump or you hate him, it's very clear how it will end because it will be politicized. In the end, it'll go very similar to what happened to Bill Clinton about 20-odd years ago, which is that the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives will go through this proceeding. We will go through these hearings for months, which will cut into the U.S. presidential election next year, and they will vote to impeach him along politicized lines. But the GOP-controlled or Republican-controlled Senate, whose basically future is tied to this U.S. president, and realize that a lot of their supporters will would actually basically lacerate them at the polls if they did something like that and actually decided to boot Mr. Trump out of office, whether they love him or hate him, will ultimately vote to acquit him, which is the technical term, or exonerate him, which a lot of modern publications are using today. That's really not the big part of it, Bob. The big issue is, will there be any potential damage, more specifically to U.S. President Donald Trump, for his re-election bid next year. And a lot of that depends on the testimony that we hear over the next few months. This is just day one. Obviously, if you look at the political left and political right, both on TV, on social media, or just listen to them on the radio, they're all sort of stating that it's either a huge bombshell or it's a meaningless, you know, a meaningless amount of words that really don't mean all that much because we sort of know how this thing is going to end in the grand scheme of things. So that's really, for me, is the key, is whether there will be information brought out, something new, some sort of revelation, 
some sort of incredible piece of evidence that we haven't seen to date that will either destroy President Trump's future and ruin his re-election bid, or whether it's not going to have that much effect at all. And again, that it's still early days, but if you base it on the whistleblower account and various other measures that have already been released, it should be interesting and entertaining, if nothing else. And finally, Dr. Uh, Tepper, please, your thoughts. Well, this should be, a, as everybody's portraying it, really, a constitutionally and historically momentous uh, event launched today, which will then proceed as, as uh, the other two guests have described it. It is, however, likely to be not that at all. It's likely to be not an inflection point in American history. This is a serious matter. The impeachment of a president is, is rarely done. And it should be kind of one of those markers in history, but it's much more likely just to be a blip for the reasons that have just been uh, presented. So what we have in front of us now is an effort to persuade the general public, and particularly Republicans who possibly might actually be watching and listening, that there is enough here to change their position, to change their mind, because otherwise... If they don't change the minds of the Republican base, the Senate is certainly not going to change its position. That is, the Republicans in the Senate, keeping in mind that the House, just as a reminder, draws up the bills of particulars. And it's not certain they will, by the way, but it's highly likely. This is preliminary, preliminary to drawing up charges. Then those go off to the Senate, which takes two-thirds uh, to convict and uh, thereby remove a president. And the 20 votes necessary to switch on the Republican side just are not there unless the Republican base itself changes. And that's the uh, attempt by the Democrats at the moment to say constitutionally we are absolutely correct, but politically we want to change enough minds to make it happen. Dr. David Yaloff, professor of political science at the University of Connecticut, Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor, and Dr. Elliot Tepper, senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. So, did you get a flu shot yet? Libby's had guests in recent weeks talking about its importance. There's the regular dose or the high dose for those 65 and up. However, family physician Dr. Jeff Habert told the show Wednesday there's no guarantee you can get the high dose one right now. About 10% of our seniors will get the flu. Uh, they get sicker if they get the flu because there's a concept called immunosenescence where they're more likely to get the flu and the flu is more severe and their response to vaccines is less. So 10% of seniors will get it. They only compromise about 15% of the population, yet they account for 70% of the hospitalizations and 90% of the deaths. So clearly it's very important for seniors. So the reason the high-dose vaccine was formulated is the standard vaccine... In, in people over the age of 65 is about 30 to 40% effective. For those under 65, about 60 to 70% effective. So the high-dose vaccine was formulated, it's four times the dose, and it's about 25% more effective than the standard dose vaccine for seniors. The problem, as you now ask, is it's been a little bit tough to get this season. Similarly, last season, 
There seems to be a shortage. We're not sure why. Public Health sent a notice yesterday saying that we will not have more stock now till early December. And if we need to, then use the standard dose vaccines. So we've been doing that if we have to. And, and people are asking me, and what I'm saying is, if they're really high-risk seniors, I'm giving them the standard dose vaccine. They need to be vaccinated. I don't want to wait till December. I don't know when. If they're very well seniors and they don't have a lot of chronic illness, I will give. I will have them wait for the high-dose vaccine. And if they're snowbirds and they're going south, I'm telling them, pay the 30 bucks or 40 bucks in the States and get it when you get there. So if, if you're going to the States, certainly wait and get it in the States. So I'm not sure what's going on. I, they're saying that we will have it in December. So let's hope it's there in December. And what's the reaction in most cases? Do they say, you know, best, fine, I'll, I'll do that? They're or do okay. they kind of grumble They're under okay. their breath? And, you know, if some of them are upset, I put it in perspective. The high-dose vaccine is 25 or 24% better, true. But getting a vaccine is the most important thing in flu season. It's such a big deal to get vaccinated generally. You need to be vaccinated to prevent this. It's a really big deal. I mean, last season... In Canada, we had 3,500 deaths across the country. That's not a small number. We had 200,000 emergency room visits. So these are really, really big numbers. And, and we have the stats. If you're, a senior, if you're a senior that gets influenza and you get hospitalized, your chance of dying is about 10%. Those are really big numbers. Dr. Habert, if we can, in wrapping up, in stressing a point, whether it's the high dose, the regular vaccine, to really drive home the point. I mean, I, I think the point is, number one, honestly, in flu season, all year, though, hand washing. Hand washing is number one. Number two, especially in flu season, get the vaccine. The targets in Canada, public health would like 80% of our seniors to be vaccinated. Last year, we got to 70%. Get the vaccine. In a perfect world, get the high dose vaccine because it's 25% better. But just get vaccinated because it really will protect you. And even if you get the flu after being vaccinated, you're offered extra protection. Family physician, Dr. Jeff Habert, who's also assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the U of T. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. The snowstorm on Remembrance Day has many residents, especially in the neighborhoods of Old Toronto, calling on the city to plow their sidewalks to make it safer and accessible for pedestrians both with and without physical disabilities. As it stands, residents are expected to clear their own sidewalks. Sidewalk clearing is one of the inequities. In Toronto, the inner suburbs get the service the old city does not. 1,400 kilometers of sidewalks do not get plowed by city workers even after major storms. But the city's kicking off a pilot project next month, which will see some 150 kilometers of sidewalks being plowed by the city. Libby spoke with city councillors Josh Matlow, Mike Layton, and James Pasternak. There are those of us on council that believe that everyone's standards of life, uh, no matter whether you live in Scarborough or Etobicoke or North York or downtown Toronto, should be lifted. And that, that everyone should have access uh, to uh, a safe and navigable sidewalks. You know, we believe that every sidewalk should be accessible to all. And I, and I, and I, I, I often remind my colleagues who, who disagree with us respectfully, uh, many of their residents who, who reside in North York and Scarborough and Etobicoke uh, you know, also want to walk in Midtown and Downtown Toronto, uh, and, and it's an inequity to them as well, and it's wrong. 
Counselor Layton, uh, has anybody quantified the extra amount that it, it costs in terms of extra falls or extra claims because of the fact that this isn't done? Well, it'll be every couple of years we have this debate, and it comes back to city council, and we tinker at the margins. We add a couple streets in that uh, to 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 just make it a little bit more fair within a neighborhood. Uh, we 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 add a little bit of budget in to improve things a little bit, but we've we've shied away from from really addressing the elephant in the room, which is the fact that 17% of residential streets in the city don't get clearing and the rest do. But the number for clearing a couple of years ago was around the three to $4 million mark. Now that's probably increased, but as the price of clearing the subway, uh, the, the streetcar, sorry, the sidewalks in, uh, in the inner suburbs have also increased in that time, that, that councillors within those areas that aren't cleared and the residents within those areas aren't cleared are also paying for uh, the, the clearing of, of, of other sidewalks. So it is there, there, while there is a big equality piece that needs to go into this, there's also the notion that people just can't get around. When you have people with mobility issues, it struck really home with me last year when I was trying to push my, 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 my infant in a stroller just to go to the grocery store, that you had to lift up the carriage and carry it 20 feet because one resident didn't clear their snow, either because they weren't there or they themselves have, uh, have, uh, aren't able to clear it them, uh, themselves. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. The fact is we need, people need to be able to get around our city. Councillor James Pasternak has been waiting very patiently. Clearing snow is not an exact science. It is extremely difficult to navigate many of these sidewalks. Uh, in many cases, lawns are damaged. Uh, sprinkler systems are torn up. Uh, curbs are broken, and uh, I just want to say that you're going to trigger you know, thousands of complaints uh, as we roll it out downtown, which which structurally is a much more difficult place to do sidewalk uh, clearing. And councillors Matlow and and Layton know that, and that's been the big problem over the years. But we're we've spent millions of dollars on new equipment. We're going to be starting to to clear off uh, sidewalks that are not currently being serviced. Eighty percent of Torontonians are getting sidewalk clearing now. Can we do better? We must do better. We have some money now to expand it. We expand it every year. We're expanding it more. We just spent somewhere in the vicinity of five million dollars in new technology and equipment. We want we want uh, Councillor Layton uh, to come back with a proposal through the budgetary process to expand it further. I'd be happy to support it, Councillor Layton and Councillor Matlow. Uh, what would you like to leave us with? Simply that uh, Councillor Pasternak earlier said that we're doing our best. We're just factually not doing our best. I heard a lot of divisive talking points undercutting uh, various members of council, including myself. It's just it's not the way to actually focus on good public policy. We should be looking at this policy as to whether our child or our parent or our friend was walking down that street. What would we like to see for them? And we're not doing as good as we can. And we need to work together to do better. And that's what I'm hearing from residents. That's what I heard from your callers. And I hope that they tell the mayor and council the same thing. Okay. Councillor Layton. The city did a poll and asked Toronto residents if they supported snow clearing on sidewalks adjacent parked cars, which is the 17% of sidewalks that are remaining. Overwhelmingly, 96% of Torontonians agreed that this was 
a winter city and that this was a standard that needed to be maintained. Um, I simply put forward a motion that tried to bring us along that route and it was voted down by the committee, first the committee and then a majority of city councillors. Uh, we need to do better and this was a step, this was, a po- this was an opportunity to do better right before the winter season started and we failed to meet it. City councillors Josh Matlow, James Pasternak and Mike Layton. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Kompsik. Software developer Yako Joubert recently conducted a study on vacant residences in the city through photography with a focus on condos. He found that the vacancy rates of such properties are higher than the current estimates suggest. It's caught the attention of some at City Hall. Libby talked to Yako Joubert about his photographic study findings and City Councillor Deputy Mayor Anna Bailau, who's calling on the city to consider possibly imposing a tax on empty residential properties as a way to increase the supply of rental housing. So when I first uh, set out to look at the lights and condos, I thought that um, it'd be about 1% vacancy rate across the buildings. I didn't really believe the rumors that people were buying up multiple units and leaving them empty. Um, and so over the course of a year, I looked at about 15 buildings uh, with an like empty period in between. So I looked at the beginning in the spring, and I looked later in the summer. And I compared um, all the light usage to see which units over those, that period had absolutely no light usage. And that was about 5.6%, you know, not seeing any activity at all at night. Councillor Bailao, is that what you think the real vacancy rate is? Well, uh, we actually uh, had an initial look at it when we first uh, started um, talking about this in the city. In 2017, we had a report uh, that said that, you know, at a very high level, they looked at water and hydro consumptions. And obviously, the home is empty, your water and hydro consumption is very, very low. So taking that in consideration, the city actually uh, thinks that maybe between two and 4%. So that's between 15,000 and uh, 28,000. So Jack was actually not that much off. I think that the ballpark is is very much, you know, uh, around there. So the possibility of having thousands and thousands of units that are sitting empty in our city, um, I think is very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yako, uh, do you think that maybe many of those are being used as a kind of Airbnb on occasion or something like that? So interestingly, the buildings that I did look at that was kind of known for having Airbnb use in them, they were some of the lowest rates. Um, they were came in about 1.2% for the buildings, the ICE buildings. Um, so I, I don't, I think that probably if you're Airbnb, uh, the units out then they're probably going to show up as occupied uh, it's, uh, unless, you know, you are not doing a very good job of renting them out on Airbnb. So, <laughs> uh, And uh, Councillor Bailao, so in Vancouver, they imposed this in 2016, this empty homes tax, and it raised an estimated $38 million in the first year. You know, that's not exactly chump change. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, some of the feedback that I've uh, been getting sometimes was that, you know, it was costly. It costed them $8 million just of initial costs. I say that's still a pretty good deal. Even if in the first year I have to spend $8 million to bring $38 million, I think that's still, you know, uh, money that is, is welcome. And I think that there's two things. First of all, they use the money to invest in affordable housing, which I think is the right thing to do, uh, because this is not so much about a, a new tax. It's actually try, doing two things. First of all is recognizing that 
a house is to be somebody's home. And if you're going to treat it as an investment, then, you know, you will have a different treatment. You have that choice, absolutely, but you will have a different different treatment. But also that trying to disincentivize people from doing that. I mean, if people want to have properties, rent them out, fantastic. That is exactly, we need so much rental in our city. I mean, the vacancy rate is very unhealthy. So if some of these people put these units in the market and in the rental market, amazing. It will be somebody's home. That's that's actually the essence of the policy. I wish we would create this tax and that a few years later, we wouldn't have any revenue, to be honest with you, because that means that actually, you know, these units would be rent out or they are you know, somebody was able to buy them. That, that is the big thing is that we want these homes, these houses to be, or condos to be used as homes uh, and not just as an investment. You, you can still invest. Of course, we all, you know, it's our biggest investment, everybody that, that purchases real estate, but we have to get away, I think, from the commodification of, of houses, right? And, and homes and, and understand that we are in a very, very difficult situation in the city with a very, very unhealthy vacancy rate that rents are skyrocketing and that, you know, people that have very uh, good jobs cannot afford to live in the city. Uh, never mind, you know, sometimes in people that are facing some vulnerable situations. And, and so I think that, uh, that we need to understand that we need to create policy where we can have every home that we possibly can and create the opportunity for these homes to be to, to be somebody's home. Yako Joubert, who did a photographic study on vacant Toronto condo towers, and City Councillor Deputy Mayor Anna Bailau. I'm Bob Komsik. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. Rob in Belleville wanted to talk about the Trump impeachment hearings. The Democratic Party started after Trump before he was even elected, and they've continued. They cannot accept him as president of the United States. Bill in East York complained about city snow removal. I live in East York. I've lived here for 25 years. My windrow, they come after I shovel my sidewalks. Three days later, they come with a bobcat when there's no snow, and they clean my sidewalk. They draw the night of the snowfall or the next morning. They put five tons of snow at the end of my driveway. The elderly lady that lives next door to me, she's 80-some-odd years old, they put five tons in hers. I'm 60 years old. i got to get out. i got to shovel out all this snow out of those driveways. Like, what are you people doing? Diane in Scarborough cannot figure out the city's snow removal efforts. What happens on our street, the little plow comes by and does the sidewalk. And then later in the day, the big plow comes and undoes the uh, ends of the driveway. But that scoop that they scoop out from the end of the driveway, they dump onto the sidewalk. So every 50 feet or so, there's this mound or mountain of snow on the sidewalks. People can't access, you know, and it's hard to clear that because it's not just snow. It's these great big boulders of ice and whatever. What, what are they doing? Like, it's all this money that they're spending and effort putting into it. It accomplishes nothing. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lynn in Mississauga, who wanted to remember the vets, including those in her family. My great-grandfather came to this country from UK in the late 1800s. He trained soldiers. He fought World War One. My grandfather fought in World War One and Two. My father fought in World War Two. And I have a nephew that's in our armed forces and has served in Afghanistan as we speak. So I would just like to say thank you to all these amazing people who came before us and paved the way for the life that we enjoy, our liberties, our freedom of speech, our everything is on their shoulders, and I thank them. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Comsick. Jane Brown returns next weekend for a roundup of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.